0: begin uh, just a a word of what the plan is here for the next few weeks uh, for Parkside. Uh, I imagine some people are joining us online as as well and and wondering about this. It's been in flux a little bit but uh, coming together and what we'll do is, uh, and this is still needing a little bit of confirmation, but the plan is next week and possibly the week after we're going to um, join another church two other churches uh, one each week that are potential places where uh, where we can uh, join our merge into and uh, that also is going to help us because we uh, the McBrides are not leaving San Diego this soon but our are the the home that we've lived in for 12 years landlords are selling And so we have to move out on April 15th. So we we have a lot of moving activity over the next two weeks that uh, it'll help uh, me not to be planning a service. But this is important, but uh, this today is not the last harbor service or I mean, parkside service. We're talking about uh, visiting a couple harbor services. That's why that came up. Uh, Today is not the last parkside service. We'll, We'll join together for worship again on April 25th at least. And, uh, and maybe May 2nd as well. The plan is right now to do both of those Sundays and May 2nd to be the uh, last of the part services. That, uh, that makes sense? Any questions about that? We turn with me in your Bible to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15? We're breaking this week from our Exodus series to preach on the resurrection. There's no better passage other than the gospel accounts to tell the story of the resurrection. On the resurrection, than 1 Corinthians 15, of course, the whole chapter speaks of the, uh, the, the actual resurrection of Jesus, but then also the implications of the resurrection in our lives, in the life of uh, the church and in the life of the world. We'll just look at the first eight verses, but then also read 9 and 10 as we go along here. I'll wait to read those in a minute. Apostle Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he, as to one, as to one untimely born, he appeared also To me. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of God stands forever. Let me pray for us and then I'll begin. Father, in your Word are wonderful truths, too great that we could imagine them or make them up. That you have revealed them to us, that we would know your truth and that our lives would be transformed by that truth. Father, will you teach us now by your word and by the power of your Holy Spirit that lives in each of us if we are indeed in Christ, holding fast to your word. We ask this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. We are notoriously forgetful people. I forgot just a minute ago the name of a book that I've read and even taught from. How many things do we need to be reminded of over and over again? We've become dependent on our electronic devices to remind us to keep our calendars. I would say today in this time and place, we are more dependent, more forgetful than any people of Times past. In fact, some of the time we are arrogant to think that we are so much more advanced than people of the past. That we know so much more because we understand more of God's creation as we observe it and the various sciences, as we understand uh, various medical advances more. But in many ways, it's helpful to understand that the people of the past have been more connected to God's creation in being aware of the seasons, aware of the weather patterns, aware of their surroundings, observant of natural phenomenon. In a similar way, the people of the ancient times were far more aware of God's Word, having memorized much of it because the printed Word wasn't available to them. They would write, or at least the easily multiplied uh, printed Word. They would write down the things that their teachers taught them. Some of the time, disciples would even write the things down on their on their garments if they had no other paper because of the importance of imbibing, of understanding, of remembering the things that had been taught to them, passed on to them. The Apostle Paul talks about this. He says that he has passed on the things that he also received in verse 3. Oh. He passed on the things that he also received in verse three. These things that were of first importance, if you're familiar with any type of discipleship programs I was brought up or uh, taught in the Navigators in college and they emphasize the significance of Paul's advice to, to his apprentice Timothy. In 2 Timothy 2.2, he says, the things that have been entrusted to you entrust to other faithful, reliable people who will then pass it on to others. Paul is a disciple of Jesus Christ. He's been taught the faith and he realizes the significance of passing these things on. And he identifies Mm -hmm. one thing above all other things, and that is the truth of the crucifixion and the resurrection. He doesn't say that other things aren't important, things that we've read earlier about in the Apostles' Creed, like the incarnation or the perfect life that Christ lived on our behalf, the suffering that he endured, not just in the cross, but throughout all of his life, the various other aspects of his life as he was teaching. But he says, "...of first importance are these central truths to who we are as Christians." And if you follow along in the rest of the verses after verse 3, it says of first importance, you see four things that he says he passes on. That Christ died for our sins. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day. And then that he appeared to various people. Four things there, but really it's just focusing in on two things. And then two ways that those things were confirmed. The assurance of those things. The two things were that he was crucified. That he died not just for any purpose, but for the purpose that our sins would be forgiven. And that he was raised on the third day. And to, to confirm that he truly was crucified, it says that he was buried. And then to confirm that he truly was raised from the dead, it says that he appeared not just to one person or even to the 12, but he appeared to these 500 people all at the same time, many of them still alive. And he calls on the Corinthian church to hold fast to this great, central, first important truth. The passage breaks down really well into three sections. And so we're just going to look at each of the three sections and what they mean for us. The first section, his reminder of the gospel, reminds them of their role in this work. Three things that they did. They received it. They stand in it. They're being saved by it. The second section, verse 3 to 8 speaks of the central importance the heart of the matter that's where we'll spend most of our time and then in the last two verses that we didn't read earlier it speaks of the Apostle Paul's role himself the way he sees himself and it's significant that the way he sees himself is also a way that is bearing witness to this gospel At the heart of this matter is the gospel going out to the world. The task that the church is still called to. We make a point of this often. If you've been around Parkside for any time, you know that we speak of the purpose of our suffering as being directly tied to the advancement of the gospel. Because if God wanted to just save everybody right now and call an end to it and end suffering, He certainly could do that. But He has called us into places of suffering so that his gospel can advance to others in the world. Our call as Christians is to be witnesses to the gospel, to the culture around us. But the culture, of course, has many questions, especially about this resurrection. We're going to come to this but just a little bit of a hint of where we're going. Do you believe in the resurrection? Do people around you believe in the Resurrection? People are dubious of miracles, but, but people oftentimes want to believe in miracles if they see the fruit of those miracles, if they see those miracles making a difference in their lives. In fact, still a vast majority of people in the U.S. say they believe in Jesus' Resurrection. That's an interesting fact when so few seem to have any kind of impact in their lives. And that's another question that comes up here, if you believe in the Resurrection, does it make a difference in your life can you see meaningful change in your life because you believe in the resurrection and the question that has to be asked if you haven't seen meaningful change based on this great truth is have you truly understood the truth understood the implications of jesus's death and resurrection and if you have understood the implications of it have you believed it in a way that you're living into it. And that's the first part of this, that Paul is reminding the Corinthian church and challenging us toward, and it really challenges us to a place that we need to be challenged on. See, the Corinthian church is faced with all kinds of challenges. Paul says earlier in his letter that the the Greeks, they seek after wisdom. The Jews, they seek after signs. They want to see signs of God's power. But he says, the gospel has come to you with a power that is foolishness to the Greeks and rejected by the Jews. The gospel is some type of upside down proclamation, demonstration of God's power. And all kinds of temptations will come and press on us to say, do you, is this really what you're going to believe? And Paul says, I'm going to remind you of this gospel which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if if you're holding fast to this word that Paul has preached. There's no other gospel out there. The timing of this plane is bad. I'm just going to wait for this one. Sometimes I'm good at speaking right into it, but let's wait for a second. Corinthians 1, 22, 24 is the verse I was referring to earlier. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the the wisdom of God. On Easter Sunday, it's usually appropriate, especially Easter Sunday, to to speak as if there were unbelievers here. And I assume that some of you are wrestling with the truth of the gospel, the, whether you believe or not. Some of you are visiting um, online, perhaps, here, perhaps, just because you feel like you need to attend an Easter service. The wisdom of the world today... It, involves, includes a little bit of spirituality around us. Many people will say, yes, I'm spiritual. I'm glad you found your spirituality in Jesus Christ. But I found my spirituality something else. They're all valid truths. And this is true in general in a lot of world religions. Most world religions are based on some type of wisdom, some type of ideas. Most world religions, involve some type of wisdom that is imparted to others that was given either dropped from the sky to one particular person and then passed on to others or that uh, or that one particular person gained and gleaned throughout their life and then their teaching to others but Christianity and the Jewish faith tradition family it's really a Jewish family that preceded Christianity that was that was consummated or, or, or fulfilled in Christ is of a radically different nature than almost any other type of world religion. Maybe there are some small ones that have some similarities, but any other type of major world religion, significantly different in that it's rooted in a historical, factual, physical, not just one time in place, but multiple times in places. It's the history of God working with his people in very tangible, material ways over various centuries to gradually reveal who he is to them. And in so doing, he's also gradually revealing who they are in relation to one another, in relation to themselves, and ultimately in relation to God. And so all of the scriptures point us to this central truth of the gospel. That Paul proclaimed to them that he says, you received this, that is that you believed it, you owned it. A lot of people in the church want to say, well, I grew up in the church. I didn't really need to receive Jesus Christ. And there's all kinds of theological arguments on this point. But the call to us as Christians, as those in the church, is that we would receive the truth of the gospel, believe in it and on it. And most of us who are believers can remember back to some point in time that we were first convicted of our sins, understanding the truth of the gospel in some greater way. And we said, yes, I need the salvation that Jesus has given, has won for me. I understand enough of the gospel that I believe. Maybe you prayed a, prayer, a sinner's prayer or something to that effect. You were convicted by it. I can look back and I've shared this before. I won't share it to my first semester of my college year, Thanksgiving. Uh, being home and as that time where I first truly believe That doesn't mean that you came to a full belief. It may not even be the actual point of conversion, of God changing your heart, of the Holy Spirit coming into your life. Sometimes we can't even see that time not aware of it, that that God was working in us when we weren't even aware. And it's helpful to understand how it's important both to receive the truth, but also not cling too closely to our profession of faith in the truth, because it, it locks God out of coming in and convicting our hearts even more and in new ways. In greater ways. It sometimes blocks the growth that we can have as Christians in understanding the gospel because the gospel is not something that we can come to and say, I believe this at one point in time, but now I'm busy doing all these good works I'm called to do in Scripture. I'm busy following the law, I'm busy pursuing this. If we view the gospel in that way as this dichotomy between the, the rules that we're to follow after we believe the gospel and we, and we think the gospel is just something that, that we believed at one point in time, then we gradually depart from what Paul is preaching to them and depart from what Jesus is doing in our lives because constantly, all throughout our lives, we have to be reminded that we are saved by faith. That we continue to sin in various ways. Paul talks about this multiple times as being the chief of sinners. And and he continues that which I don't want to do. I continue to do. And when we understand that the gospel is never something we can leave behind. And now we're, we're living the life of righteousness on our own strength. We marry those things together and we understand that our sin, the remaining sin that's within us reminds us of our continual dependence on the gospel that we can never leave it behind the gospel isn't some childish thing that we leave behind the gospel is the fullness of life that that we are constantly growing more and more into in our understanding of those things john newton who wrote amazing grace he was of course involved with the slave trade Uh, became a Christian much more to his life he wrote an interesting little essay that uh, I highly commend it's just a few pages long called the advantages of remaining sin the advantages of remaining sin you say well that doesn't make any sense but the advantages of remaining sin he says are that it continues to draw us back to our need of the gospel it continues to remind us that we're constantly tempted toward a pride and arrogance in our self-righteousness that if we had no sin or if we if we were truly if we were getting even close to being uh, completely righteous we would be tempted to be so prideful that we would forget our our dependence on Christ for forgiveness. We would we would be tempted to think that we were uh, almost like the angels that are perfect. We would be we would be prone to all kinds of sinful attitudes of the heart if we didn't have this adv- this re- this advantage of remaining sin, this remaining sin in our lives. Now, that doesn't mean that we have license to go out and pursue sin. That that's that's the opposite of this. But we recognize that the sin we continue to deal with in our lives is there for a purpose and it draws us back to the truth of the gospel, the hope of the gospel. And it gives us something, Paul says, secondly, that we can stand on. Because if we're trying to stand on the things that we do well and right in our lives, we'll either be prone to that great pride or we'll be prone to great despair. knowing that there's no way we can stand before Jesus and say, I'm righteous. Feeling like the the gospel truly isn't at work in my life because, because I continue to sin in these various ways. But if we stand on the hope of the gospel and not our good works, then we can stand on something that has firm assurance. It's a rock that can't be moved. It's Christ's power instead of our power. And by that thing, we are being saved. We we have been justified. That is something that we've been given. But we are being saved when we're holding fast to this word of truth and clinging to that promise. unless we're clinging to that promise, we've believed in vain. Christ died for no purpose at least for our lives. Paul concludes this in verse 10, if you're reading along, he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am and, by, and his grace toward me was not in vain. says, I believed and it was not in vain. It was not in vain. I'm continuing to put my hope in this gospel. And what is the gospel? Let's look at that next. It's the, the, the central, the first importance. Verse three, I delivered to you as a first important what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he raised was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the Twelve, and then to all of these other people. That Jesus died on the cross is really not disputed by that many people. That Jesus lived at a certain time in the first century, died around 30 A.D. Even that he was Crucified is widely believed. It's tough to imagine that some type of tradition would have arisen that, were just, that was just made up to this degree, that has had this much impact. Of course, what's harder for many people to believe is the truth of the resurrection. The question we have to ask is what is the resurrection and what does the re- resurrection mean? in our lives or did the resurrection really happen? What does it mean? And then what does it mean in our lives? Before we go there, let's look at the crucifixion and what that significance of the significance of that is. First, why does he say that he was buried? Well, just really briefly and really simply in a time when medical technology, as we said earlier, wasn't all that advanced. It was uncommon, but it wasn't impossible that somebody would actually be put in some type of grave mistakenly alive. Or in some type of box to be taken to the grave and then you hear a rap on the box. In fact, there was some traditions, not in scripture, but extra biblical traditions from that time that say, it's really a key factor if, if, if somebody is dead for three days and they are really dead. Make sure it was three days when Jesus healed or raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. You remember that story? It was not till the fourth day that he raised him. And Mary and Martha both object to Jesus going there because the, 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 the body would have been at a point of decay that would have absolutely confirmed death. It would have stunk. And so when we read that on the third day he was raised, it's not, uh, it's not uh, um, an insignificant thing culturally for Jesus to have been declared he is really dead That Christ died on the cross, and in dying on the cross, we read earlier from Colossians 2 that he was nailing our sins to the cross, taking the penalty that was due to us. It's that concept that we looked at last week of substitutionary atonement or penal substitutionary atonement, where the sins of one, the debt that is owed by one, needs to be paid by another. And in nailing our sins to the cross, Jesus said, your debt is completely paid. He said to the thief next to him, he said, "Uh, today you will be with me in paradise. The thief recognizing that Jesus was a righteous person who had no sin. And in being nailed to the cross, he who was without sin became sin so that in him, we could become the righteousness of God. He took our sin on him and he gave us his righteousness. It's the truth that's called double imputation, imputing our sin on him, imputing his righteousness on us. And it says that he died according to the scriptures. And you look through the Old Testament, we talk about this often at Parkside as well. That the whole Old Testament, the sacrificial system and that is teaching us to understand what this penal substitutionary atonement is. He died according to the scriptures as a perfect sacrifice for us. And the prophet Isaiah summarizes this more beautiful than any other has ever said. Isaiah 53, in verse 5, he says that he was wounded for our transgressions. Isaiah, by the way, is speaking hundreds of years, probably 700 years prior to Jesus' death. And yet, how can this be anything but Jesus' work on the cross? He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. There's that double imputation. By the way, this passage, uh, anyone who is a a devout Jew, they, they avoid this passage because you can't read this passage and think of anyone usually... The, the, the Jewish people traditionally view the nation of Israel as being the fulfillment of these various promises uh, of God and, and the suffering servant. But Isaiah 53, you just can't, you can't look on it in that same kind of way. He says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth by oppression and judgment. He was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of, of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man, in his death, how can that be except that he was crucified with the the thieves, the wicked, and then he was buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, a rich man who said he wanted to take the body and gave his own tomb for that purpose, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. According to the scriptures, Jesus died. But the death of Jesus isn't the end of the story. Many people have died sacrificially in order to save other people. I mentioned the Navigators earlier. Dawson Trotman was the founder of the Navigators. He was a Navy shipman who believed the gospel he was on the ship and he taught another person the gospel and he came to faith. And this person came to Dawson and said, hey, I was telling the gospel to somebody else and they want you to teach him this to him. And, 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 And Dawson's response was, no, I want you to teach what you have heard following along this, what you have received, give to others. Dawson Trotman famously died saving a child boating on a lake at the camp that was established, uh, associated with the the Navigator ministry um, outside of Colorado Springs. Many people have died for other people, given their lives for other people. To die sacrificially is honorable, but it's not unique. The story of the gospel would be an empty story if Jesus simply died on the cross and he was not raised from the dead on the third day. We read here that Jesus was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Again, fulfilling those scriptures like Psalm 16 that says, I will. you will not let your Holy One see corruption in the grave. King David writes this psalm, Psalm 16. It seems like he's writing about himself saying that, uh, God, you won't, you won't let my enemies prevail over me. But then he uses this interesting language. You will not let me see decay in the grave. That really isn't fulfilled in, with David. The New Testament affirms this as well. It says, but David saw corruption. He's buried. His grave is with us even to this day. And Jesus identifies with Psalm 16. And he says, no, I'm the one. You will not let your Holy One see corruption, see decay. Oftentimes, the question is asked, what was Jesus doing the, during the time that he was in the grave? It's a question that's really another sermon, subject of another sermon. I have a little note as we read the Apostles' Creed that he, he went, it's not necessarily that he descended to hell, but to Hades, which is the place of the dead. That's what the Latin is there, and the translation of hell is more from a Catholic tradition. But we continue to use that phrase to show unity across the various churches Jesus went to the grave, he was really dead, that he was buried, surely dead is what that means, but that he raised from he was raised from the dead on the third day, his resurrection. this is, this is the affirmation that the Christian truth, the Christian proclamation is true. A lot of people believe Jesus was crucified. Still a number of people believe he was raised from the dead. The resurrection from the dead does a few things. John Stott helpfully points out what these, uh, these things are. And let me just go through a few of these. He points out that the resurrection is central of first importance... and he says that the resurrection is a historical fact. He compares Hinduism... that is not dependent on any type of historical facts. Other world religions, particularly Eastern wisdom religions. But the resurrection resurrection is confirmed, not just by one, but by these 500 eyewitnesses. He says it's not just a historical fact, it's a physical fact. Many of us believe in resurrection to some degree. We believe even that Jesus was raised from the dead. But for a lot of people, particularly in the Western world today, that resurrection looks more like a spiritual, a mere spiritual truth a rising of the spirit of the person. And it doesn't acknowledge that Jesus was physically raised from the dead. He goes to Thomas and Thomas, One of his disciples can't believe it. Thomas says, let me touch, put my fingers in your side that was pierced and see that. He he eats with his disciples, that they would see that he has a physical body, that he's been physically raised from the dead, that that in that resurrection, Jesus's physical resurrection is communicated to us that our resurrection, our hope for eternity is not just that our spirit's gonna be floating in the clouds with God somehow, but that our physical body will be raised from the dead. Now our body that exists now or even what's in the grave is compared to a seed, a kernel that will be flowering or, or, or a tree blooming into its fullness. And so it's, it's, it's but a, a hint of what will be. But it's a physical resurrection. And this, again, stands against most world religions. Even the Neoplatonic, Plato's whole philosophy was that uh, we're, that the, the flesh, the material, is substandard. And the spiritual is really the goal. But in Jesus' resurrection, it's the physical combined with the spiritual where sin is removed from everything that makes such a difference. The resurrection affirms that what God made physically... He made with purpose, and He intends to accomplish that purpose in the last day. Stott goes on to say it's not just historical and physical, it's also biblical. And he points out that both these great things, Jesus' death, And his resurrection, it says, in accordance with the scriptures, these are biblical truths that have been affirmed both by the Old Testament as we looked at, Isaiah 53, Psalm 16, but also the New Testament that's not even been written yet is constantly pointing back to the Old Testament and showing how Jesus has fulfilled the promises of the scripture through his death and resurrection in particular. The Old Testament witness and the New Testament witness work together to, 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 to say that these things really happened and that they have significant impact in our lives. And then the fourth truth that Stott points out is that it's not just a biblical truth, it's a theological truth. And here we could spend a lot more time in saying what the implications theologically about who God is and what He has done for us Are the things that we are called to explore throughout our entire life. To understand how Jesus's sacrifice has paid the price for our sin and how his resurrection has demonstrated not just a power, which it has, and not just a love, which it has, and not just a a promise, of eternity, not just with a physically raised body, an eternity with Christ, a power over the grave, a power to forgive sins, also a power over the world. He reigns on high. But it also affirms a power that is at work within us as Christians. And I said earlier, we have to appreciate that if this great truth of the resurrection is something that you believe, but you hear it and it falls on deaf ears or if it's something you've believed but you don't get excited when you come to it and read about it again if it if it doesn't seem to communicate to you an urgency if it doesn't seem to commit to uh, to communicate to you an urgency to follow Christ and to give him everything that you have the question is have you understood the resurrection as it's presented? Have you believed in it and stood on it? And have you committed to continuing with it as your hope in life? Now this is something that the Apostle Paul has done. I'm going to read the last two verses 9 and 10. Well in 8 he says, last of all to one untimely born He appeared also to me. And then he goes into this explanation. You kind of feel like, oh, maybe it's a little bit of false humility or he's talking about himself more. But listen to what he says and consider, consider why he says it. He says, I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believed. Paul is concerned that this great truth be transmitted to others, shared with others, that the gospel, the resurrection, the truth of the resurrection be received and be passed on. In an age when the accounts wouldn't have been written down very quickly, there were no newspapers to report. The good news was taken to others by heralds, those sent as ambassadors to proclaim this good news to other people in other cities. They were teaching at the temple constantly to understand this great thing. They passed it on by written accounts where one person would write down what the teacher had said to others. The gospels are examples of that. They would repeat the reports orally to one another. They would write down creeds in this this statement, for I delivered to you that Christ what I also received, that Christ died for our sins, he was buried, he was raised, and he appeared. This was the earliest of the creeds. This is widely to be be believed, so these creeds play an important role. But where Paul ends this whole teaching. And remember, he's been teaching them as one who has compassion for them, a heart for them, as they wrestle with Uh, wisdom and signs, this great truth of the gospel. He leaves them by saying the greatest testimony, the greatest witness to Christ in His death and resurrection is a life that has been transformed by the power of that death and resurrection. If we live lives that are unchanged, our witness is empty and meaningless. We can speak all the right words. We can explain all the theological positions correctly. We can have all of the tools for evangelism at our disposal. But a life that's not transformed, changed by the power of the gospel at work in us, is just speaking empty words. Paul's life has been transformed by this great hope. He was even one who had at least an accomplice to murder on his hands. He was guilty of persecuting the church of God and and encouraging others to persecute it. He continues to sin throughout his life and have a thorn in his side that... uh, is probably some type of sin in his life that he says will you get rid of this but he finds hope in the gospel that he stands on constantly and he returns to and is reminded of constantly and he finds his great hope and courage and power and strength in that great thing said right at the beginning, where is the one who is wise? From beginning of 1 Corinthians one twenty. where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? I tie that in with those, those who are spiritual. Where are those who have the ideas, the philosophies, the things that they're saying, this is my religion. This is what works for me. This is what makes me happy. This is what solves my problems. I can understand something of the world. Where Are all those things? He says, but God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. He's made foolish the wisdom of the world by the power of the cross and the hope of the resurrection. For in that we can see that our lives have been made meaningful, purposeful for the sake of others. And we can live with hope, knowing that this life, the mere 70, 80, 90, maybe 100 years that we have, is nothing compared to the resurrected eternity that we will have in Christ's presence. Confirmed by the hope of the resurrection, let's pray. Father, we delight that you have established this place as a place where your gospel can be preached, that you have even given us the freedom to preach it in this place, that we are not arrested, persecuted, as those early Christians were on the Temple Mount, as many of the apostles were even to the point of death in taking your gospel to the ends of the earth, as Peter and Paul likely were in the city of Rome being imprisoned for the gospel and executed from it. We thank you for this. We ask that you would continue to give us this type of freedom, but that we would not despise the freedom or or assume too much, but that the good news of your gospel would go to the ends of the earth by the power of your word and your spirit and the testimony that lives in us, the lives that are transformed by the gospel. May we live more and more into this hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing, I will glory in my Redeemer. Oh, no, I'm I'm one page off. Oh, church, arise.